Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, but not just any fantasy today, because today it is our privilege Nay, our honor to bring back one of our favorite authors from one of the fandoms that we love to interact with the most. I'm talking, of course, about Joe Abercrombie. And this is a very special book that we are discussing about Joe Abercrombie. You know, we've done the First Law trilogy. We've done all three standalones. We're going to do the Age of Madness trilogy. But before we get into that, there is a book that we just cannot overlook. Hmm. What book is that, Charles? (laughs) Well, Dylan, I'll tell you, this book (laughs) is none other than Sharp Ends, the short story anthology from the world of the first law. This is one that when you pitched the series way back in the day now, you (laughs) insisted on. You said this cannot be skipped if we can help it. We really need to read this book. And here we are today. Here we are today. We're ready to talk about Sharp Ends. And I'm pumped because I wasn't sure, Charles, you were kind of waffling for a while if we were going to get to read this one, but I'm really glad we did. And from uh, my sense of your energy today, Charles, I feel like you're glad we did too. I'm glad we did too, not only for us, but for all the First Law fans out there as well. I feel like this book doesn't get talked about as much as, say, the Mm. First Law trilogy. And I don't think it's a book that should be slept on. And I'm glad that we did not sleep on it. I'm glad we're not doing it dirty. We're giving it just Mm. as much time as we would give any other Joe Abercrombie book in our lineup. And I think it will set us up very powerfully for Age of Madness, which, spoiler alert, I've already started. I'm about 30% into A Trouble with Peace and loving it, but we will have that conversation. A little hatred, Charles. Oh, a little hatred. hatred. Thank you. Thank you. I know it's a... (laughs) It's a bit confusing. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't be hasty, (laughs) Charles. I know, I know, I know. I'm so excited. But here we are, guys. Not to get too far ahead, especially not that far ahead. Let's bring (laughs) it back down to sharp ends. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go in order as they are written in the book. And we'll read a little bio that I have for each one. And these are found just on the Joe Abercrombie wiki. I didn't write these, but I wrote the notes underneath. But I figured let's go go ahead and read these two-sentence things as we go. Maybe this will be a two-parter. I don't know. But we're going to get through every short story. We'll see how long it takes. We're going to share our thoughts. We're going to share our all these discussions and but before we do any of that dylan give us one of your legendary uh spoiler (laughs) warnings all right well since we're talking about sharp ends here and that falls between uh, the standalones and age of madness we will not be holding back on spoilers for the original trilogy that's the first three books nor will we be holding back on spoilers for the three standalone books Mm. that would be best served cold the heroes and red country Mm. so if you have not read any of those now is a great time to start with the blade itself is what we recommend yes and work your way toward sharp ends Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you don't want any of those spoiled for you then now is a good time to turn this down in your headphones and stop listening because uh, i don't know if we'll spoil too much from all of them but we won't be holding back right the key and a lot of it i would also recommend to read these books in publication order because i mean 
only someone that has read all the other books published before this one will get the full experience. You know, I think you could read most of these and just enjoy them on face value. But honestly, there's no point. All these other books that came before it are just as good. And like having the full context going into these to see what Abercrombie's intentions truly are with some of these short stories, you wouldn't understand his true intentions unless you've read all the books. So highly recommend reading his books in publication order, which is what we have done here on the show. So highly recommend. Now, let's get right into it. We begin with a short story titled A Beautiful Bastard. And our main point of view is Salem Ruse. Salem Ruse has returned. And this is exciting because, you know, we got Ruse at the very beginning of the first law with Glockta. And there was so much going on with him throughout the first law trilogy more than we may have expected as we when we started the trilogy to when we ended it and then he's come up in the standalones and so we've gotten to know where he ends up what becomes of him but this is what we get before and even more important than what how we see salem ruse before we get to see another very special character and what they were like before they came into the main series as one of the most beloved characters in the first law universe yeah, Sandan Glockta. The one and uh, only. Yeah, the one and only Colonel Sandan Glockta, back when he actually was <laughs> Colonel Sandan Glockta. And right. you know, Charles, we've heard a lot from Glockta himself, from other folks, Ladislaw building up the legacy back in the original First Law trilogy <laughs> for right, who Glockta right. was, and Wes talking about who Glockta was, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole nother thing to see it through yes. the eyes of a fellow soldier under his command. So it's like you have this just truly the the short story is called a beautiful bastard and just yeah this truly magnificent bastard that is glockta uh just making a giant show of being this almost hero picked from legends and you really get characters like that in a joe abercrombie book right uh only only really when it's tinged with that irony (laughs) of you know where this is going and we get glocked just i mean i'm sure moments if not hours before or hours if not moments i don't know before he is going to get captured by the Gurkish and uh, slowly transformed into the Glockta that we meet at the uh, original First Law trilogy's beginning. Right, that's well said. This takes place right before he gets captured. You even get the scene where he decides to lead the charge after losing Mm -hmm. or taking a touch to Wes in a duel. But one of the things, again, and you had said this, Dylan, in a much earlier First Law episode i think we were talking about jazal and you said abercrombie's Mm. like scathing through his narration and in this case we get to see glockta just gets absolutely roasted in the narration uh through the eyes of salem ruse and again it's the beautiful bastards just the beginning of it he speaks to his arrogance his beauty his pompousness his rudeness, how everyone is just drawn to him because he's such a socialite as well as a talent, Mm -hmm. how he's taking advantage of these younger, inexperienced children fighters, basically, to show off in front of a crowd, how he uses women and and throws them away, just treats them as conquests, all these absolutely scathing things. And that is like the real highlight of this POV, is to get such a scathing perspective of Glockta when he's a totally different man before he becomes like the inquisitor glockta that we know at the beginning of the blade itself yes and to support all that you're just talking Mm. about about the narration here i have picked a a quote that just gets into all of this it's but glockta was an utter bastard A beautiful, spiteful, masterful, horrible bastard, simultaneously the best and worst man in the Union. He was a tower of self-centered self-obsession, an impenetrable fortress of arrogance. His ability was exceeded only by his belief in his own ability, which is just... (laughs) Such a beautiful line. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the only thing that could be better than Glockta's ability is what he thinks of himself. And yeah. <laughs> other people were pieces to be played with, 
points Mm. to be scored, props to be arranged in the glorious tableau of which he made himself the centerpiece. Glockta was a veritable tornado of bastardy, leaving a trail of flattened (laughs) friendships, crushed careers, and mangled reputations in his heedless wake. (laughs) That... Uh, and that sounds amazing Abercrombie <laughs> prose. Yeah, you always pick the best quotes, Dylan. Well done. And that's just like, it goes on and on. Like this whole chapter yeah. is just loaded with these things. And it's what puts Abercrombie like towards the front for me. Just his cutting, cutting wit yeah. and narration. The idea that he's like this tornado that leaves people's like <laughs> livelihoods in his wake, you know, is, is such a beautiful image. And like you said, the idea that the only thing that exceeds his natural ability is his, you know, opinion of himself. It's such a beautiful <laughs> thing to say. And it's interesting to see like this is all shrouded in the tragedy that we know happens but the characters don't know and that's part of this like world building magic that abercrombie has woven for himself he knows how to play his pieces at different times in his narrations and he knows how to hold back on certain things and something like and then he went off and became the glockta that we all know to be tortured and this and that it's like it's implied and we know that so when he is arrogantly confidently leading a charge and the narrative is committed to that as well, and we know what happens. It's a totally different shroud of what's actually happening and the themes and things that I just love from Abercrombie. His commitment to not like explain it or remind you, just stay committed to the story while having read the first law and know how this character ends up super fascinating. And then to see like the Glockta we know and love ends up as like the most powerful man in the union. And it's interesting to see exactly like when you talk about this guy who's an absolute bastard, exactly how much he was humbled through that torture process to hone him into the influence that he's able to be this like under this more understanding guy who even acknowledges that he was a bastard just like how much he had to go through how much horrible torture he had to go through to like be checked from that you had to make him a really big bastard before that so this sets all of that up beautifully and we get to see wes as well and i'm a big wes fan and he totally Mm -hmm. lived up to his image of himself you know he had that hard-working go-get-em talent and he was ready to lead the charge and glockton insisted he didn't you know all these things about about west that were super interesting to see as well and like why he was so like balancing duty with his own livelihood and his family and all that yeah. it's, it's super fascinating so for it sure and it also gives perspective to that moment in the blade itself where they uh, we get that moment with West and Glockta mm-hmm. where Glockta is so upset with West for not coming. And we kind of get this moment of like, why didn't West come to see Glockta? Weren't they friends? <laughs> and it actually helps build up how noble West, we know West has his faults and his mm-hmm. anger gets in his way. And the scene with Artie that we've talked about a lot is mm-hmm. a really, really brutal one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, but at the same time, we know that West has this really admirable, uh, dutiful part of him and loyal part of him that it puts in perspective that like this is the person Glockta was being back then. And the fact that West still tried to show up for Glockta after Glockta fell from grace uh, is is just really admirable from him. Mm-hmm. And also it puts in perspective why no one else came because Glockta's appeal was being simultaneously the best man in the union while being the worst, not just, and then you take away all the best aspects of it from Mm -hmm. him, all those things that people were perceiving and all that's left is the worst man in the union in everyone's eyes. And uh, almost ironically, we see Glockta, I think, grow as a person when uh, all of those bests, quote unquote, are taken away from him, at least in terms of his ability. Well said. I totally agree. And I don't even know from this short story, I would even classify what Wes and Glockta were, were friends. You could tell that Mm. even Wes was scared of Glockta and only did stuff because Glockta ordered him to, you know, and it's interesting to see how Glockta basically spared Wes 
from being part of that suicidal charge. And I wonder, you know, that must play a part in why Wes tried to go and visit Glockta when he returned. Maybe part of him was uh, almost, if not guilty, thankful for the I, that Glockta ordered him to stay behind. You know, there may have mm. been that sense of honor from West to visit him because he's the one that spared me from the charge, you know? So, I, like, they were friendly, but Glockta was such an ass that it's hard to imagine yeah. him being truly friends with anyone. All right. Well, I mean, that's yeah. we got to keep no. moving along here. So many beautiful POVs to go, but this was one of my favorites. Can I favorites. say a bit more? Yeah, please do. Yeah, I I want to comment on the the Tony appearance. You get oh, all right, <laughs> which well, I just yeah. think is a really yeah, it's just a really funny Easter egg for those who have read the heroes and know of Tony as being. I this, love Tony. Um, <laughs> yeah, being this very resigned, seen it all soldier who no longer has very much in the way of heroism in him. We see we do see a flash of it in the heroes, but most of Tony's character is just being really, I guess for lack of a better word, lazy and realistic right, as well right. about soldiering, but lacking that bravado. And the way he appears when he's so young in this <laughs> moment, right. maybe he was learning some lessons here, uh, <laughs> is... Uh, he he gets called over. He's under Glockta, and he, he, Glockta says, "Corporal Tunney," and you get this line, "Sir, the keenest of young soldiers snapped out the keenest of salutes," and <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny thinking of Corporal Tunney being this very very yeah. Uh, and I love that after all this time, he's still a corporal. Also, yeah, like he's Corporal Tunney in the Heroes as well. And one of my favorite quotes from the Heroes is a Corporal Tunney line where he's like, wars are hard enough without people fighting in the middle of them. You know, <laughs> I love that line. And this is yes. now this go getter in uh, in this short story that takes place many years before the Heroes. Yeah. And Glockta tells him uh, thanks when Tunney's helping and he tells him to basically go back to the tent and get Glockta's things uh, squared away. And we get a moment from Tunny. It's Tunny's face was a picture of shock disappointment. I was hoping to ride down there with you, sir. <laughs> and he has to blink back tears when Glockta tells him he's not allowed to. So I just think this was a interesting. These are the amazing things we get in that like expanded universe sort of thing that we get right. uh, mm. in this is a future point of view character for Abercrombie who we get to see maybe this shaped him in part into the kind of person he became where it was like oh my god I tried to charge down there on that mission <laughs> with Glockta and I would have surely gotten killed and mm. I got spared just by avoiding fighting yeah and he probably took that lesson with him so it's it's a great moment and yeah there's tons of them and there's one coming up in the next short story that I absolutely love and we'll get into that but unless yeah. you have anything else to say I realize I didn't read the description for a beautiful bastard but I think we got the job done anyway I think so uh, shall we go into the next uh, story here yes so the next story we have is called small kindnesses and the POV here is a new character the character of Chev mm. and this is a love, a, Chev. love Chev. This is a character that comes in and out of this book uh, for the throughout the whole thing. Like almost every other story is, is a Chev plotline, and it progresses in chronological order too. Like the this is the earliest Chev moment that we get, and then the next story is afterwards, and and it keeps going. So it's interesting to watch like this sub plot that is Chev go on throughout this book of short stories. You know, it's very interesting. And I'll just read the description super quickly for Small Kindnesses, year 573. The hopes of Chev, the best thief in Westport, to turn her back on crime, come crashing down when she finds a huge drunkard sleeping in her doorway. Doing the right thing always comes as a price. And at a price, I mean. And Dylan, you've said something similar to this about Abercrombie's character arcs mm. <laughs> since we did play it itself, right? <laughs> yeah, I like to say no good deed goes unpunished. Right. It's a little snappier, I think, than doing the right thing always comes out price. But that being mm -hmm. said, I 
Yeah, I love Chev so much as a character. She's actually one of my favorite Abercrombie characters. Mm. And uh, I mean, not that we don't get as much time with her as we'd get a point of view in one of the actual main novels, but she's she's a roguish type. And we rarely get women who are rogues in fantasy, so I always appreciate when we uh, get that. And she's really well depicted. She lives a very interesting life. Hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll go through it more as we get into different stuff. But she meets so many interesting people. And even at, uh, that weave in and out of the first law books. So it's, yeah, it's interesting seeing this person living a life kind of parallel to all the stories that we've been reading so far in the First Law trilogy and in the standalones. And it starts here where she's working with Severard. Yes, Severard. And I mean, we'll get into the whole plot of the story, but one of the things I was really happy to see get a shout out. We were talking about Corporal Tully in the last one, but Severard's birds get a yes. shout out in this story, <laughs> which I was so happy that we got like a little uh, Easter egg of Severard's birds because that was one of the things that stuck with me <laughs> in I know. what what book was that? Was that the third book, Last Argument of Kings? I think that's Last Argument of Kings when uh, Pharaoh is threatening him. And like, give me one she's reason like, give not me to a kill him. He's <laughs> like, my birds, my birds. Yeah. And she's like, what? <laughs> Your birds? And yeah. then she spares his life because it just kind of threw her for a loop. It made her think of her dad who had birds or something. I don't know. It was funny. It was one of the rare cracks in Pharaoh's rough exterior that we managed to see. And it was Severard's birds. And who knows what happened to them? Because at the end of uh, Last Argument of Kings, we all know what happens to Severard. But uh, this is him in the beginning. And he's like a, an eager upstart. You get to get a sense of where he starts his enterprising kind of nature. And you get to hear about his birds, which I just loved as a as a Severard bird fan. I feel like that representation was was huge. <laughs> I was thinking of you as soon as the birds came up, Charles, because I know you're obsessed with that moment. I was so thrilled. <laughs> yes. Abercrombie's got something for everyone here in, in these short stories. But it all starts because Chev is... She's already at this point, she's still young, but she's already a former thief and like the most famous Mm -hmm. thief. And she's running a smokehouse and not a very good one either. (laughs) Uh, So in Westport and one of her only employees is Severard and they meet this unconscious woman who we know to be, uh, how do we pronounce this? Javra. Javra. Thank you. (laughs) On the doorstep of their smokehouse and... They, this is this again, this mention of doing the right thing always comes at a price. The right thing being taking her in, even though she looked like a complete drunkard and a total mess. They took her in anyway and they, like, you know, cleaned her up, put her in bed, things of that nature. And that kind of kicks off this whole, this whole Chev plotline that goes throughout the whole book. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Javra makes only appearance at the end of this one. She becomes much bigger presence mm-hmm. in the later stories with Chev. Right. But she's almost a Chekhov's gun in this <laughs> one where you're just like, okay, well, there's that giant woman that she took in earlier. And then she's just kind of there, presumably unconscious, while all this other stuff is playing out with Crandall and his goons coming in and uh, trying to get Chev back into the thieving business, even though she's, I believe she's 19 in this story. Yeah, she's very and, young. And like, yeah. And we get to kind of see her grow up throughout the, throughout Sharp Ends, which is interesting. Exactly. And, she gets on quite a few adventures in her time. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so she gets sucked back into thieving and despite all her efforts she's unable to uh, (laughs) deliver an object that crandall is after and there's all this stuff that leads to that moment at the end where javer comes in to to save the day actually but then to wrap chev up into 
a life that is going to be very, very interesting and full of trouble. So hard to say all in all. Uh, I mean, it's, I think Javra saved Chev's life and it won't be the last time. Yes, because yeah. there was, again, you said you love a good rogue character and she was doing all the rogue things when we get this yeah. whole moment of her trying to steal this precious object and she fails in that because there was this woman in the room sleeping and started screaming, raised an alarm. She does all these, you could tell she's learned all these lessons of being a thief, the way she jumps out the window and the way she mm-hmm. darts through the, the hall, through the alleys and across the roofs and things like that. And this whole thing ends where she has to face Crandall empty handed. And that's when Javre comes in and, and kills them all. And it's this idea, again, no good deed goes unpunished. By saving Javre, Shev is now complicit in the killing of Crandall, who's a big deal. But then also by Javre killing Crandall as as her good deed, essentially. Now yeah. they're they're looped into this. And uh it's it's just interesting to see how this whole kind of subplot for that this whole book just kicks off well said charles and i i grab a quote i think chev has is just full of wisdom which is mm-hmm. the a lot of the quotes i grabbed from this one are chev quotes and mm. i have one i really really love in that last story i think it's three's a crowd not the last story of the book the last one that has chev in it right and it, the she this wisdom i really like i'm gonna censor some uh, some words for our clean podcast and uh turn them to the word crap when they really begin with an s i do believe chev is in tough times all over by the way but i see what you're saying in tough times the one with oh oh you're right right, yeah Mm -hmm. the last one that has a chev point of view but you are right that she was in tough times all over Mm -hmm. um so all right. Anyway, hey, the we have Severard who says, "You sure, boss? You remember the last time we helped someone out?" And Chev says, "Sure, no." And then we get in Chev's prose. Chev uh, didn't know after all the crap that had been done to her why she still felt the need to do small kindnesses. Maybe because of all the crap that had been done to her. Maybe there is some stubborn stone in her, like the stone in a date, that refused to let all the crap that had been done to her make her into crap. <laughs> she turned the key and elbowed the door wobbling open. You get her feet. So... I think Chev, even at 19, is already world-weary enough in Abercrombie's world, mm-hmm. uh, which we've talked about Glockta before as someone who, right. by the time of the original trilogy, is very aware of that he's in a grimdark novel. Yeah. So is Chev, mm-hmm. and yet Chev keeps trying to do the right thing, and in part it's because of the empathy that's been built for her by seeing all the like times that crap has gone awry for her when she's trying her best so she really tries to help out and and that i don't know i, I just love chef and right she's and we've talked like about how it, well i agreed completely and one of the things that we've always talked about with Aber- abercrombie's work is this overarching theme of these small kindnesses of yeah. doing good deeds when you can make the world a slightly better place in the ways that you can and then deal with the rest. And we've always stressed this point. It's like, yes, Joe Abercrombie's Lord Grimdark, and there's a lot to love about his Grimdarkness. But over, ultimately, his message can be perceived as one of hope. And I think by, I think that quote you just shared with us, Dylan, from a, a short story called Small Kindnesses, we get, again, reminded of this theme of like, the good people in these stories make these good opportunities when they can and, and, and whether it plays out for them in the end or not it's just this matter of we can control what we can control and society is this almost like a joke and horrible and <laughs> we can only do these small kindnesses that we can so yeah i think that was a great quote to pull for this story yeah that's well said charles anything else thanks. before we mo- move on to fool's job 
We'll have no, the opportunity. I, I, to I have more to say about Chev, but there's another quote that I'll share. That we have. We'll, we'll have more opportunities yeah, to talk yeah. Chev as we get into these later books, yeah. but as uh, later short stories. But for now, we have to go to the year 574 to talk about the fool jobs with our POV of Kerndon Craw, and this is the first time that a POV character has been repeated. By the way, is with Craw, uh, not something Abercrombie usually does. But here we are, and he does it a few times in this book, too, which is interesting. But the point yes. is, Cross the First, this is a hallmark Abercrombie evolution here, and the description that I have is, Kerndon Craw has been sent with his dozen to recover a thing from beyond the crina. One small problem, no one seems to know what the thing is. And I don't think we ever get to know what the thing is. There's some descriptions that we get around it, but I wasn't able to... I was not able to puzzle out what it was. And I think it's like a Pulp Fiction kind of thing where you just don't, you. it's never explicitly said what it is. There's some like mythology around it. But I mean, ultimately, this begins a plot line that goes throughout this whole book of like this secret object that everyone wants, but no one knows what it is kind of a thing. Um, and yeah, we get we get the return of Craw, who we haven't heard from since the heroes as well, which is another very exciting thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we get that moment of cuz I'm trying to remember if that we get the the bloody thing with the kind of bloody light about it, mm -hmm. but I don't think anyone knows exactly what the thing is. Yeah, it's like a they, twisted piece of wood and yeah. it's being held by a priest in a tattered robe and animal mask clutching the thing, a twisted piece of wood yes. with the faintest pale glow about it. And Craw, when he sees it, is stunned, right? And doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And it's only Jolly Yan who splits the head of the priest from behind, which reminds me of that scene with Carib with wow. Black Dow. <laughs> yeah, like, almost Dao, like the yeah. exact same scene. And Carib, I think, makes an appearance in this too, or at least she's, she gave the orders, uh, yes. which was fun. So this scene was very reminiscent of that. And. That you know the the fire started and all that. We also get the backstory of how. Uh, oh wait, no, that's not in this story, is it? Oh yes, we do with Weir and of Bly, uh, his introduction into Craw's crew, and you get to see like how they met and how they weren't really quite sure of this Weir and guy, and then this whole plot of Weir and's like, oh, I'll laugh when I hear something funny. You know that sets up yeah. the ending of the story, which I thought was well done. I I didn't see it coming. It, it comes off as like a mm -hmm. passive comment, like oh, I'll laugh when I hear something funny, and you're like, okay, okay, and then this joke, this like tragic joke where they did all this stuff and just to figure out that they rescued the wrong thing they he, like uh they rescue this they steal this gold cup and not the the object you know and they're like oh man we did all that work for nothing and and then we're in falls about laughing which was such a great moment exactly charles it is a great moment it's just abercrombie's classic irony and that he pulls that kind of end out frequently mm -hmm. in these short stories uh, something that just feels right i think to abercrombie about those kind of endings i think some desperado which is the shy short story that mm -hmm. also kind of ends with one of those cruelly twisted moments of like it looks like things despite all the trouble actually are about to work out and then it's taken at the last moment. So it feels very Abercrombie. It's nice to see Weirin get introduced and he does get that moment where they get to see exactly how like how great a fighter Weirin is. He yeah, he kills like a dozen dead people. Yeah, 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 he kills not he kills a dozen people and they become dead. Not he kills a dozen dead people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So I, yeah, it's an interesting... It's not a story that sticks out particularly to me. I mean, mm -hmm. we know Craw as a character. It's nice to get more time with it. It's a fun action uh, piece. It sets it up this mysterious object, which I was like, is it the seed? Is it something else? Like, I don't know if it was ever explained, but the seed is in the house of the Master Maker during this time, I would think. So yeah. I don't know what this object is. It's just more of that Abercrombie lore, and it probably will never matter. <laughs> but it's just one of those yeah, things. Yeah, I don't think it matters. <laughs> it's just one I think of those it's just things. like, 
Yeah, it's just a sorceress wanting some sort of magical thing. And we know magic is fading from the the world already at this yeah. point and mm-hmm. only continue moving in that I couldn't help but so. think of uh, Pulp Fiction with the suitcase where they open it and that's, it's the glow that comes out. <laughs> that's interesting. I thought about Pulp Fiction a lot with, with the story that we'll get to. You already mm-hmm. mentioned tough times all over. It's hard not to think of yeah. it that way, but yeah. Yeah, tough times yeah. all over is also very. Pol- I've always thought that like Tarantino and Abercrombie had this similar vein about them. We've said this mm. before. It's like this. There's something about the absurdity of their plot lines, and then how they embrace violence to have fun. Like those kinds of things always struck me. And the great characters and dialogue as well yes. come out very strong. It's also, as well. in addition to all of those things, which are great points, Charles. Mm-hmm. There's the I guess genre savviness that both of them have where whatever genre they're doing a movie in, they will play with and twist and subvert and just have fun sometimes embrace loving. It's like a loving satire Mm -hmm. of genres that they start getting involved with. They always put their unique spin on it, but there's, this reward for the genre savvy reader who's seeing the tropes and then seeing how be it Abercrombie or Tarantino is having fun with and, and playing with them. Yeah. So that's so well said. That. Cause that's Abercrombie. So yeah. It's like that Bill. because you could see he like embraces. He's like, well, if I just wrote another fantasy story that I liked, it would be predictable. It would be derivative. Yeah. And I, and I love this genre so much. So he was able to, how do I deliver a new experience on all of these themes? And we get it with like, even like the Western vibe, we yes. get some of that as well. And with the fantasy vibe, yeah, it's, it's truly, it's well said. I agree completely. Yeah. No, <clears throat> those two are good comparison. That yeah. could be a, not promising anything there or anything, but it right. could be a fun ep- thing to do an episode on at some point is comparing those two. Yeah, I think uh, that'd be anyway. like a good little e- essay of like, yeah. you know, comparing the two and how they approach creating stories. I agree. There's lots of fun parallels there. But unless we have anything more to say about Fool's Job, we get that Carib callback. We get the introduction of We're in a Fly to the story, but... Um, mostly just like a fun action piece. Um, if you have anything else to say, otherwise we can keep moving on. No, we can keep rolling, Charles. All right. So we are now just one year later in this episode, a year 575 episode. It's it's a short story called Skipping Town. Chev is back for another POV story. And the description reads as such, Chev and Javre, ill-matched adventurers, find themselves forced to flee yet another self-made disaster. And this story was okay you know it, it uh, this is again another one that didn't really stick out to me that much um it's just like the situation is kind of funny or they're both on this rickety bridge and refusing to move for each other oh wait no that's a different no, that's, that's, I'm sorry. Later that's later Aaron. okay this i get yeah. them confused i'm looking at my own notes here this is the one where they fight uh the warrior priestess uh Waylon. Of course, they they enter this like saloon type place and uh, spring a trap and kill this warrior priestess. And it kind of kicks off the arch of like, she won't let you go. They'll send more after you, you know, like that kind of thing. And you're like, okay, something happened here. These characters are coming back now. Like this is a this is a whole thing in this story. Yeah, I I wouldn't call this story filler per se, but it is just kind of a check-in mm-hmm. of here's what Javra and Chev have been up to and getting a sense of... Right, it gives more backstory Javra, to Javra. Yeah. Mm. Who's after Javra? Who is she? All this kind of stuff. You need to know that later. And how have Chev and Javra been relating? What have they been up to? And basically just leaving a wake of, <laughs> of problems and right. issues and misadventures uh, wherever they go, and then going somewhere else. So you need to yeah. know that, but I don't think it's a standout story. Right. Even and was this the beginning characters. of where they have that like partner conversation? It's like, oh, you're not my partner, more like my, you know, uh, em- 
well, sidekick, sidekick, hench, yeah, hench, yeah, henchman. Yeah, it's like I can't remember if yeah. that started here, but that's like a theme that gets kind of wrapped up on the at the end. But um, I believe it's introduced here, but I don't fully remember. Um, maybe it doesn't. But yeah, it begins their little uh, their little company and and what to expect from them going forwards. Yeah. A fun action it's, piece. You get to see Javre kick some butt, which was fun, but not a whole lot of meat on the bones here. More to just build more backstory for what's to come. Yeah, it does have the sidekick stuff in it. It's oh, good. With, you have been a fine sidekick so far. Uh, and then Chev says, I thought this was an equal partnership. And Javre says, <laughs> all the best sidekicks think that, <laughs> which is uh, just this great ongoing gag throughout. So Right, right. Yeah, that we get that check-in. That arc, yep. So we got that check-in, and that was great. But we've got so many other exciting things to talk about, including our next POV, which is called Hell. Uh, and this is a temple POV, but I don't think yeah. they ever say that it's temple Maybe they do no, briefly. They okay, it's they do. Literally starts with Temple Rand. <laughs> Shows what I know. But uh, I thought the story was a lot of fun because I was a big Temple fan back in the Red Country days. Remember yeah. those? Oh, just not so not long, long ago. ago not Charles. too long ago. Yeah. Great memories. And the description I have for this short story called Hell reads as follows: uh, "Quote: I have seen Hell, and it is a great city under siege." And the fall of the Gosca through the eyes of a young acolyte. Obviously, the young acolyte is Temple. So you get to see a couple things. First of all, you get to see some background for Temple. And Temple in Red Country was always describing himself as kind of this coward type character. And he used to be religious and he's not really anymore. And he feels like a fraud when he preaches and all that. And you see that through here and how kind of his disillusionment starts. But it also sets up the backstory for, like, it gives us more light into the siege of Degasca, which we know Glockta was a hand in making happen. And he, uh, Glockta fled the city before the siege happened, and the siege happened kind of off camera. So it's fascinating to be dropped into the middle of that action. And then we also get to know more about the Gurkish and the priests and all the religions around that and how they interact with each other, I thought was very interesting as well. Getting to see some of these more holy figures from the Gurkish to step in and, mm. and like be like, Oh, I'll spare everyone here. If you, the religious leader, like put your, put your, you know, like a surrender basically. And uh, yeah, I remember, you know, so many, so many fascinating moments of dialogue in this story. And yeah, just as a temple fan, seeing, his disillusionment happened before our eyes was super fascinating as well. Well said, Charles. Yeah, I I mentioned this Kadia Temple connection back in Red Country, or Red Country episode because mm-hmm. it's only briefly mentioned in that. But Kadia, yes. we'll remember from the original First Law trilogy and a truly just great man. And he gets the treatment that happens to pretty much all the just maybe not all but most at least of the truly just honorable people mm-hmm. in Abercrombie's work which is they get that no good deed goes unpunished moment <laughs> and Katia's faced right. with this choice of hey we'll take you or we'll or everyone else uh and he he makes the most noble, admirable choice possible, which is like, are you kidding me? Take me. <laughs> like, I, he is so noble that he's like, I would have traded my life for any of these individuals, which yeah. he sees as almost like a good deal. And we know what happens when you fall into Gurkish clutches from Glockta. We know he ended up in probably really dire straits with these eaters. Mm-hmm. And yet he, he does it because he's such a good person mm-hmm. and yeah, it's hard not to see that temple. Yeah, he believes be in like, this greater good, which Abercrombie's right. gone so far to say doesn't exist <laughs> in his stories. But uh, there's moments like these that remind us that there is, you know, hope out there. Yeah. Well, I think it harkens back to things like Juven's even where it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, you could have these really, 
incredible, great people, but those people sacrifice. So it's the petty that survive. And we kind of say how Juvens was probably this Gandalf-like figure. And then someone like Baez comes along, who's just a really petty, awful person who's willing to make the ruthless choice. And if Baez Mm -hmm. was (laughs) put in this situation, we know Baez wouldn't question for a second that he'd choose, no, get rid of everyone else. And... It's, yeah, it's Katia going down for what he believes in. And you can't really ask for any more than your death being for something that you believe in when you're in a Joe Abercrombie novel. So I do think, even though it's sad to see him go and Temple became disillusioned from it, like, this is the best ending someone like Katia can hope for. In, <laughs> uh, right. You know. And he made the story. choice willingly to save others. Yes. And in doing that he almost like educated temple on some of these basic religious teachings that i think temple went on to enact in red country you know he was a coward and that was always his first instinct but temple was at his best towards the end of red country when he was willing to yeah. go back for the people he loved and he was willing to like get help and do something about it and ultimately he had one of the happiest endings a first law character can have <laughs> which which is like a relationship and a business and you know not peace yeah we get this moment where he feels like he failed but i do think like you're saying he learned from it where it, he's it says that was the time to step forward temple knew to act as he would want to act as he would want others to act That was the moment for courage, for selflessness, for solidarity with the man who had saved his life, who had shown him mercy, who had given him a chance he did not deserve, to step forward and offer himself in Katia's place. Now was the time. Temple did not move. No one did. And that moment, I think, sticks with Temple. It takes a very heroic person to try to step in their place, a very rare person, uh, but I do think, like you're saying, Charles, that sticks with him. And though it creates all this self-doubt for him where he's thinking, I'm such a bad person constantly, he's also doing a lot of very good things throughout Red Country and one of the more admirable characters uh, in in that book and in Abercrombie's work in general, I think. Yeah, and it's so interesting that Abercrombie has chosen to tell Temple's story this way where... It's like a prequel to Temple, and it's a prequel for a lot of characters that we get. And it's just like the device of the story. And I think at the end of this, we can have this conversation of like like what Abercrombie was doing in part with this book. And a lot of it was giving these kind of prequel recontextualized origins to a lot of these first law characters that we already know. And it's like, yeah, like the story starts and stops in a specific place, but... People change over time, and it's so interesting to see all these things that happen in people's lives that can be considered influences for the main story, air quotes, main stories that we get later on. So to see Temple, I guess you'd say fail, but see these examples of Temple where he knows he's rendered himself to be a coward and that better people sacrifice themselves to save him. And how that goes on to affect his life is super fascinating. And the fact that Abercrombie decided to do this for characters like Lakta and Craw and Weir Nablai and Severard, it's like, wow, okay, this is like really fascinating stuff. And it just comes down to like really good, I'm going to say world building. You know, we always talk about the first law universe and like the way he plays with these characters is, is incredible. And we're reminded of that in this short story with Temple. So very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you put the you put in kind of the world building category when I mean, I always get what you're saying, because it's like building this, this expanded universe. Mm -hmm. But it's always character, I think. And what the world building is in this sense is getting to understand how characters have been influenced by other characters in such a sprawling, at this point, a sprawling world that then sets I mean, you're getting into um, you're getting into a little hatred uh, right mm-hmm. now, as you you know that's what you're reading now. I'm saying, mm-hmm. and yeah, even across generations, how characters influence each other is mm-hmm. explored by Abercrombie. So I think it's yeah, it's and interesting. It, the in story that sense. is yeah. improved just on the fact that we know the guy Temple right. becomes. So 
Abercrombie already wrote that. He doesn't have to write that in this story. So the fact that we get a very well-written story on face value, we're also getting all this implied character growth that is a really fascinating reading Mm. experience that you get a decent amount in fantasy, but in this case, like you had said, Dylan, it's very character-forward. We say it's world-building, but it's really like character building for all these characters that live in this world as fascinating device that he has used and employed and it, it's just a great way to tell a fantasy story um do we have anything else to say about hell before we move on to our next pov now charles i think I'm ready for the next one. All right, let's keep it rocking. This next one is Two's Company, another Chev POV. And the description reads, uh, Javre, lioness of Hoskop, runs into Cracknut Weirin on a bridge over a remote canyon. Can Chev persuade either of these proud heroes to step aside? And like this was the one I was alluding to earlier, uh, mistakenly, yeah. was this like, it's just it happens it's another fun story these these two big forces like run into each other and they're at this impasse on this bridge and it's kind of like like almost like the insignificance of the moment put up against these two really big powerful characters it's almost like a comedy it's just a situational comedy and and how it's and how it's set up and i enjoyed that aspect of it but i don't have too much to take away from this Yeah, Charles, this one, the the fun is just in the dialogue and the meeting between these two funny, interesting characters in Javra and Weirin and having Shev's snarky observational humor involved mm-hmm. in all of it. But it's hard to do this story justice too much from like a podcast perspective where mm-hmm. it's like, well, there's a bunch of really funny lines and observations, but like essentially it's just two larger-than-life personality folks with a big competitive streak and too much pride interacting with each other while a third character with common sense and snarkiness watches on. And it's a great story, but just there's not as much depth in, in this one as in some other ones, I think. I would agree. And unless you have anything more to say, for the sake of time, I'm willing to move on. Um, sure. let's do it. And this is another one that's like fascinating, but also not too much to take away. And that is wrong place, wrong time. And these are the POVs changed through a bunch of these, you know, side smaller characters. And the description is three, not entirely innocent bystanders are sucked into the chaos of Manscaro Mercato's vengeance. And, we know from reading Best Served Cold all these different stages of Mercado's vengeance, right? Like she she tries to kill seven individual people and there were many iconic moments that stand out from that. And some of the more iconic ones, including the banking house of Valentin Bach, uh, Mardotti's uh, house of leisure, like these standout moments, we get to just see a different more innocent perspective of characters that were killed as part of the fallout of Mercado's plan for vengeance. And it's interesting to me because we know Mercado like kind of grappled with the cost of her vengeance throughout the whole book. That was kind of like a main plot in Best Serve Cold was like, what's even the point of doing this? Like it just gets more violence. Are we really achieving anything here? And getting the perspective of some of these characters that I guess you consider as like casualties of war, you know, these these people that kind of died on the sidelines, didn't really have a stake, but died anyway, uh, makes it a bit heavier, adds some more, you know, gives some more personality, some more connection to these things that just kind of have in the background, like, oh, a lot of people died in the banking house of Valentin Bach. It's like, but now we're getting like the perspective of someone who wasn't really involved in the power struggle that died anyway, you know? So like he had a family and, uh, and kids and a house and he was trying to get a promotion. So just fascinating to see that backstory, giving some extra weight to the pursuit of violence that Mercado went through and exactly how bloody it was. 
Yeah, that's well said, Charles. I think Abercrombie does this in a few times in this book where he's trying to really drive home the point of all this potentially glorious seeming stuff that mm-hmm. happened in previous books. Mm-hmm. If you misinterpreted that as being actually glorious instead mm-hmm. of as being brutal and sad and tragic and messed up, mm-hmm. then let me remind you <laughs> that these people have, like you were saying, uh, the the first character we get introduced to at the bank, he's trying to get a promotion. He leaves behind a wife who's angry at him. That was their last conversation was mm-hmm. that uh, they were just kind of fighting. He has a, a child and he mm-hmm. wants to show up and be a good person for all of them. He's just, he's kind of an everyman. Yeah. And uh, you get put in an everyman situation. It's like, these are, this is most people, every single person who dies at the hands of Mercado <laughs> because of her obsession with vengeance, which is getting no one actually anything productive. Every single one of those people had a life, potentially a family, potentially children, all this stuff. And it's like, that's how messed up all the stuff that Mercado did was. You need to know that. And that's, I think, Abercrombie's point here. And he he makes it with a few of his previous characters that, you know, we love Mercado as a character, but... She did, did some, some really messed up yeah, things. She did some really messed up things. The only other thing that this story serves to do is give us more backstory into uh, Gorst, actually, because there was that we all know that you know yeah. Gorst was with a prostitute, and that's why he wasn't there to save the king. And we get some backstory to that because the POV is the uh, woman that was with Gorst, and all Gorst did was just like mm-hmm. hug her and cry in her arms the whole time, which was Aww. you know it was a touching moment. You know we we like Gorst over here. Well, you know we're we as a character we like him. He's we're sympathetic. To We're him. sympathetic. Yes, exactly. Well said, Dylan. We're sympathetic towards Gorst, and this only added to the sympathy. You know, he—he's. He, um, it's just another interesting perspective of from from Gorst there. Yeah, well said. I think that Gorst is just a very complicated person, and we do get the sense that he had really poor parenting and he talks about his dad some in in the heroes and his perspective and basically that he was never shown love from his father and we get the sense he doesn't i don't think he even mentions his mother much at all and anything mm-hmm. so uh, yeah he's basically just looking to be nurtured at that point and it's i don't know it's sad mm, it is very sad indeed and uh yeah, that was wrong place, wrong time. Anything else to say until we move on? It's interesting that last point of view is the person who who basically just turns sides at the end because he realizes <laughs> if he pretends he was on the other side, he'll get to survive the fight. Yeah. It's just yeah, I just don't think I've ever seen that portrayed before so it sticks out to me it's like oh actually i'm not wearing any distinct uniform i could just raise my arms and yell like i won yeah he just watched all his friends get murdered and he's like we won Mm. hooray (laughs) it's like yeah to save his own skin he was realistic about those things he was realistic about those things and that that helped him out quite a bit here so dylan here's what i'm thinking we have one two three four five we've just done six stories there's six more to go. We're about an hour in. Do we oh, wow. do we do one more and call it? Do we call it here? And because some of these ones at the end, I really have a lot to say. So I'm thinking, you know, will we turn this into a two-parter? The question is, where do we draw the line? Do we want to do one more? Yeah, sure. Let's do some Desperado. A little Shy South talk. Yeah, let's do some we'll, Desperado. We'll there. I agree. Let's wow. do... Dude, some... we've got a lot to say on Sharp Ends, I guess. I thought there's we were going to crank through this. And... <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of stories here, you know? And there's a lot of connections to be made to other parts of the First Law universe. You know, we've got from Severard's birds all the way up to Glockta himself to talk about. And, you know, we don't want to leave anything behind. 
and we're not going to do that today with some Desperado. Main POV being Shy South, Shy, the main character of Red Country, who uh, we loved to read at the time. And we remember that she was kind of traumatized from an earlier event in her life where she had taken people's lives. And now we get to see that event played out in front of our very own eyes live. And just knowing that that's what's going to happen is fascinating and the description I'll read really quickly, and then Dylan will get your reactions here, is there's no honor among thieves when the outlaw Smoke, who is shy, finds herself yeah. being hunted down by her own comrades. Yeah. Now, shy, we know, has a, had a sordid past, like you were getting at there. And she... It, it's interesting when you think about her motivation. She actually had it sounds like a relatively decent life leading up to this. And she just wanted to create some sort of name for herself or have some sort of adventure. But we get the sense that Logan, before he went full bloody nine again in red Mm -hmm. country was a pretty good father figure to her. Her mother treated her pretty well, those kind of things. And we we get this line where she's, she's caught up in all of this and uh, she says she didn't deserve this all she'd wanted was to be somebody worth speaking of to not be nothing for god to not be nothing forgotten the day of her death now she saw that there is a sharp balance between too little excitement and a huge helping too much but like most of her lame-legged epiphanies it had dawned a year too late so we get a fuller picture of shy's like okay why did shy go out there she just wanted to make a name for herself and kind of be someone. And then she becomes someone, Smoke. And yeah. it's actually all for naught. So it's Abercrombie, I think, A, giving us more shy, which we really appreciate and understanding mm-hmm. her better. And B, giving us more of that lesson of all this like named men type stuff. We see that in the North all the time people seeking being a named man and uh, we we see that pretty much the best you can hope for (laughs) in Abercrombie's world is what Shy ends up getting which is like a more simple life by the end of Red Country Mm -hmm. and here we see her making kind of the mistake we've seen from other characters of seeking some sort of notoriety and that pretty much always gets folks in the Abercrombie universe in trouble and we get a lot of trouble here with shy uh, it is uh, like fun and entertaining scenes we get but we know shy got herself wrapped up in something pretty messed up exactly right and it's fun it's the story that we've heard a bunch of times it's like hey if you want to like make a name for yourself and do all these things it's gonna cause all these scores that you'll have to settle and it never ends and the violence just feeds into itself and you have to be prepared to make those decisions and face those realities and in this case shy has faced all those things and she even you know there's this moment where she's down to the last guy and she's got the crossbow pointed at him and he's kind of you know begging for his life being like hey you know i wasn't the mastermind here i was just following along and you could tell Shy really wanted to let him go and couldn't. And it was this this moment that kind of was the trauma that kept her from taking lives too often in the beginning of Red Country. And you could tell that it affected her throughout her whole life. And it's I don't think it's something she came to terms with until the very end of Red Country. Yeah. And kind of the twist in all of this is that that the person that she's killing was a lover of hers, mm-hmm. which, I mean, it doesn't sound like they were deeply in love or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, it's, it says, uh, yeah, it made her, her relationship with him made her feel as if she weren't on her own on one side with the whole rest of the world on the other, which was, yeah, which is a very... I guess, nice sentiment from someone who's as much of a loner as shy. And that's the person that she kills. So I'm sure that has a big effect on her and it really helps flesh out. In addition to being an interesting, fun story standalone that I think, um, I do think it's featured. I could be wrong about this in a book that I own. That is a short story anthology put together by a uh, George R. R. Martin. And uh, it's Gardner. 
I'm gonna mess up the last name. It's like right. Um, but anyway, called Rogues. So it mm-hmm. does stand alone pretty well as a story, or it might be in Dangerous Women, which is also put together by Martin and that other guy. I think it's in Dangerous Women, which is a short story anthology. So it's a very interesting story and standalone, but it's also a great uh, way of of fleshing out Shy's backstory and building those stakes, kind of how we got with Temple as well. Yeah, well said. And I, I do kind of remember in my research that this was a story put in a, another collection. Uh, yeah. I don't remember which one. But uh, yeah, no, I agree. Great perspective into Shy, and I'm a you know I'm a big fan. And uh, yeah, I mean, not too much more to say. It's interesting to get some context behind this huge driving force of like Shy's trauma in Red Country, and how her pursuit to make a name for herself in like this more modern time, right? This more yeah. Western theme. Uh, and how that plays out like the exact same way it would have played out in the north before the first law. So it's just it's just fun. And it's also just well-written Western action where she's hiding yeah. out in a saloon and falls through mm-hmm. the roof and shoots a guy in a well and like loses the money. Like that's the other thing too. She doesn't even get the money right. at the end. That's the ending. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That it kind all... of twisted irony <laughs> I was talking about where, yeah, so she's like, oh, wow, I've got the money. I believe she's holding it over a well, if yeah. I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's like, wow, this is actually going to work out okay in the end. And then the bag rips yeah. open. It's like, and well, it's this so wasn't for absolutely nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. It's so classically Abercrombie, which is uh, just twisted, cutting irony that, uh, yeah, even the, even the one good moment ends up being a cruel joke and... Uh, yeah, uh, it's a sharp end, Charles. I think that's uh, <laughs> a sharp mm. end for story. It was a sharp end indeed. Very well said, Dylan. And you know what? There's so many more stories to go. I mean, Yesterday Near a Village Called Barden is one of my favorites, and we can get into that later on. Yeah, it's a great uh, one. That's a classic one. But I think that's a great way to start part two of our sharp ends book discussion. But for now, you know, I think we've covered more than half the stories and we should be able to just crank out these last ones and get our overall reaction at the end. But we've got some great ones. Like, man, what makes a, or or made a monster is so good. I I can't wait to get to that one. Uh, Tough times all over is a fun romp. I mean, there's so many here that we can, that we can get through, but yep. Some of the best are yet ahead. Um, thank everyone for listening to Sharp Ends Part 1. This was so much fun. And, uh, yeah, just more classic Abercrombie. It's always a good day on the FDF podcast when we get the opportunity to talk about some of Abercrombie's works. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Charles. Yeah, so much fun. I'm glad we're reading Sharp Ends. And, I'm, yeah, I'm excited that you're enjoying it this much and that we're going to get to talk even more it's it's just a great time talking abercrombie with you buddy couldn't have said any better myself dylan such a great time tacking abercrombie with you and unless we have anything more to say about sharp ends before we go into part two i think we're ready to play that sweet sweet outro music let's get that sweet sweet outro music pump in charles all right here we go Thank you, everybody, one and all, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, uh, go ahead and find us over on social media at the FTF Podcast with a number one on the end on Twitter and the FTF Podcast on Instagram. Give us a follow. Drop some messages in there. Let us know what you think of the show. We always love interacting with folks over on those platforms. It's so much fun. And Dylan, if they are fans of the show and they want to support us even more than following us and engaging with us on social media, and they just so happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast. Just find that Friends Talking Fancy page on the Apple Podcast app. Click the Friends Talking Fancy page, scroll down past all those episodes until you start seeing stars. Once you're seeing stars, the optimal number of stars to click in order to support the show would be 
five of them if you have a little bit of extra time, then writing a review is extremely helpful for a podcast like ours. But just listening is more than enough. Thank you so much for doing that. Just listening, guys. Thank you so much for making it all the way to the end of this episode. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends.